Well, I want to encourage you to turn in the copy of your scriptures to Titus chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this morning. I've been inspired by the life of Daniel and the three Hebrew boys in our regular preaching series by Pastor Adam, and you know, just seeing how Daniel and these boys, they lived faithful lives in the face of wretched opposition. You think about King Nebuchadnezzar, his prefects and his conjurers and all the people that he had, they were in authority to these men, yet they found a way to live in a way that honored God, and it showed his character right here on this earth. And it's caused me to critically think about how to live in this world that we're in right now. You see, because I can remember a time not too long ago, sounded like somebody's granddaddy, I can remember a time not too long ago, uh, but I can remember a time not too long ago when, when it was okay to pray in school. And, and in fact, it was encouraged. I remember starting school each day in prayer. And the teachers would, would say, hey, you need to do it. Honor God. He, he's given you the ability to learn the material today. That was what we did. It was prayer in school. And we said the Pledge of Allegiance. And that was commonplace growing up. And then it transitioned to a, a moment of silence because we didn't want to offend others. And so, yeah, let's, you know, have a moment of silence, let everybody pray to whatever God is out there. And, and then now it's become a moment to where they just simply want to silence God. They don't even want to have his voice in the schools. They don't want to have his voice in the streets. They don't want to have his word resounding in the courts as they're making laws for our day. That's the kind of country that we're in. Couple that with crime that is on every corner, children being you know, born out of wet, wedlock, and no use in getting married anymore. They just live together and decide one day when they're tired of each other, to go and hit the repeat button with someone else. That's kind of what we see in our culture over and over again. You know, drugs are taking the lives of both young and old, and that's happening on a daily basis, even right here in Hickory, more than you'd ever believe. Sex trafficking is arising day by day, you know, we've gone to a place to where people say, oh, we're a post-Christian nation. We might even go as far as to say that we're anti-Christian nation because people oppose Jesus Christ with the utmost amount of hostility. Even when you bring up his name, people just, it brings a, a, a frown to their face. I saw a sign even in the gas station that said, those people that are without sin, they just need to lighten up. And I uh, talked to the lady up at the counter. I said, hey, what does this mean? She said exactly what it said. People that come in here acting like they don't have sin, they need to lighten up and live a little bit. But that's the tone of our culture, right? And it could cause us in a, to get into a situation to where we're either afraid of or we have anger towards an ever-increasing godless society. But you know what? This isn't how we should be. You know, there's some Christians that say, well, I just want to go home and be with the Lord. That rapture sounds pretty good right about now. Bring it on. Because the days are evil. I've even heard some Christians say that they're afraid to have children because they're uh, just concerned about the day and age that they'll live in, and even their children. But you know what? We should live out of fear, and we shouldn't have anger and hostility towards this world because Jesus told us that it would be this way, didn't he? In John 16, he says, In this world you will have what? Trouble, tribulations. 
That'll happen. John 16, 33 says that. Then John 15, 18, it says, if the world hates you, just know that it hated me before it hated you. We shouldn't take this personal. They don't like us because they don't like the God that we represent. And even Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't just say that there's going to be hostility between you and the world. But he, he went a step further, which I love this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Because just when believers can say, yeah, hostility between the world and us. Separation. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13, guess what? You are the light of the world. You're to be salt and light in this very world that you're tempted to despise. Isn't that amazing that Jesus would say that to his people? He says, I have, I have left you here on this earth to be a preserving agent to the humanity. You know, you imagine what it would be like without Christians living in this world. And so therefore, I've entitled this morning's sermon, Godly Living in an Ungodly World. Godly living in an ungodly world. We're not to be like them, but we're to be all that God would have us to be so that they might have an opportunity to glorify the God in heaven. That's what our job is. And we're going to look to see the answers to these questions that are going to unfold right into this text. But really that question is this, how do we live godly in this ungodly world that we're in? And I think Paul answers this question as he gives exhortations to Titus in this text that we'll examine this morning. But let me pray, and I'm going to ask God to bless this time together in the Word. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we're humbled that you have given us copies of the word of God. We ask that you would use it now. Open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things from your law, that it might change our thinking, shape our behavior, and allow us to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do all this because you're a good and gracious God, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this letter was written by Paul, the apostle, and he was writing this to Titus. And Titus was a full Gentile, unlike Timothy, who was uh, half 
Greek and Jewish background, and uh, Titus was converted under Paul's missionary preaching and teaching. And Titus was one of Paul's trusted co-workers because it was evidenced by the fact that he would send him uh, to some of the most troubled places like Corinth and Crete. I mean, can you imagine saying, hey, Paul, sign me up. I want to go to Corinth and do my ministry with you. Ready for that ministry, right? Corinth had all the gifts and had some of the greatest problems to go along with those gifts, right? But then he also sent them to Crete. These were two places uh, that had great influence across the rest of the world. But at the same time, they were trouble spots. And Paul sends his trusted partner in, in ministry. And it was bad there in Crete. You can see if you turn over and you go left in your Bibles, you can go to Titus chapter 1, verse 12. This was written about Cretans by their own philosopher. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Who wants to sign up for that ministry? Hey, Paul, let me go and uh, minister with you because these people are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. See how many disciples we can make in this place. How many of you guys, yeah, we're ready to sign? I didn't see any hands go up because it's difficult. This would have been a difficult mission for Titus. He's there, he's in the faith, he's trying to encourage the people in the church. Paul in chapter 1 is saying, hey, establish and, and set in order the things that remain in the church. But he do it amongst people just like this. And he says, even in verse 10 in that chapter 1, he says that uh, they were described as rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers, upsetting whole families and teaching things that they shouldn't teach. And he had to minister in the midst of this. So not only was that a sad commentary of society, that mindset had crept into the church with false teaching and people that were promoting themselves instead of Jesus Christ. And he said, minister in this place. And you think about it. I just described a little bit of the United States. But even that has nothing to compare to what Titus would have had here in Crete. Because at least we have, you know, at least decades of people that have been Christians. We've had a massive wave of Christian influence and revivals and, and all kinds of moments in which people have come to know Christ and the, and the gospel has gone forward and lives have been shaped. But right here in Crete, he didn't have that. But guess what he had? He had the word of God and he had the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was enough because you see, God's mercy is what he had. He had the doctrine and the doctrine of God should always result in godly living. You see, some of these Cretans were confused to think that all they needed to have is the teaching of Jesus, but they made a divorce from the teaching of Christ and their daily conduct. And Paul, through to Titus, he says, no, those two should always be married. Doctrine and duty. Doctrine should inform our lifestyle. Because you see, it's God's mercy that calls us to a life that's characterized by good works. And we're obligated to do so because we want to do what's good for others because God has done the highest good towards us. You see, the goal of our Christianity is not to just get saved and go to heaven. If that was the case, God could have just, at the moment of salvation, easily transported us into the heavens and be like, mission accomplished. They were a wretched sinner, but now they're in the heavens. But what did he do? He left us here to be the light of the world, to be a sanctifying agent in this wretched culture that we live in. So we shouldn't be tempted to just grumble and complain about society around us. We should seek to be godly so that God can change people from the inside out. We don't want to do just behavior modifications and try to transform culture. We want to give them the gospel so that God can transform their heart. Amen? Amen. And then we'll see the fruit of that. But this has never been a, a political issue for us. 
It's a spiritual one. And so Paul is telling Titus, and he's saying, remind them of these things that they should do. Because guess what? It was an ungodly world then. It'll be an ungodly world now. Decades from now, it'll still be an ungodly world. But we have to make it our ambition that we're going to be godly people. We're going to be godly people. We're going to be God's people on this earth. And we're going to see that, that really receiving God's love, as I mentioned, results in godly living, even in an ungodly world. And Paul uh, gives Titus these three things, these three truths that remind the Christians in Crete that if they do those things, they can be godly, even in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. You see there in verse 1, he starts out by saying, remind them of these things. You know, something that we just need to point out is the fact that uh, we need to be reminded of these things. It's things that we should have already known. Paul told them. He told Titus. It was mentioned to Paul. These things have been passed down, that we should be living a life that is honoring to God no matter what the conditions of society is. And the second thing is that this is a present active imperative. He says that you need to keep reminding them. This never grows cold to remind them of what they should be doing as citizens of heaven here on this earth. Stresses the importance of not only giving them gospel information, but they should understand the implications that it makes towards godly living. He says, keep on reminding them. And then he gives us three things that we are to remember if we're to exhibit godly living in an ungodly world. And that first thing is we need to remember the mandate for godly living. Remember the mandate that we have from God in order to bring about godly living. And we'll look at that in verses 1 and 2. He says, the mandates that we have, you realize we have a Christian mandate to be a good citizen? A good citizen. If we're going to be a, a good citizen of heaven, that means that we must be an outstanding citizen here on this earth. Christians are called to be the model citizens, no matter how, uh, no matter how bad society and culture is. And how are we to do this? Well, he says it there in verse 1, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, and to be obedient, and to be ready for every good deed. When he says to be subject to the rulers and authorities, he's using that word subject, meaning to continue to put yourself under the authority of another. It's the same term that's used in the New Testament to describe the activity of the, the wife in respect to her husband, the same activity of the slave in regards to his master. And it's, in fact, the same term that's used for Christians to submit to one another in Ephesians chapter 5. He says you're lying yourself up under another person for their good and for God's glory because that's your duty. He says that's the mandate that we have. Scholars have even pointed out that this being subject to rulers and authorities would have been difficult for the Cretans. They would have needed counsel to do this. Their island was in the hands of the Romans, and by all accounts, the Cretans were very restless under their yoke. You see, the, the Roman authorities gave them unreasonable rules and laws and, and exorbitant taxes. They took way more money than was necessary. But they needed to be reminded of these truths. I can only imagine what it was like there in Crete at the coffee kettle. You know, I don't think they had coffee pots back in the day, but can you imagine what the coffee kettle would have been like? I can't believe these Romans got us paying all this money. Unreasonable laws. Every t everywhere they turned, there was an unreasonable expectation of them. And they were trying to be God's people. But he says, guess what? They need to remember their mandate, and that's to be subject to these rulers and authorities. These rulers would have been, for our day, it's the president, it's the governor, it's the mayor. All of those who have authority in our life, we're to subject ourselves to them. And it's not enough to just say, okay, all right, 
They're leaders, so I might as well submit. He says, guess what? You're to be sub subject to these rulers, but you're also to be obedient. You've got to take it a step further. It means that you say, I'm continually subjecting myself and I'm actively obeying all the rulers and authorities, period. You don't put any commas. You don't put any buts. But what about these areas? It's Christians are to ensure that they live under the laws of the land completely. So what do we do? We pay our taxes like Jesus and the disciples, right? Render to Caesar what's Caesar and give God what's God's. That would have been an excellent opportunity for Jesus to say, you know what, put that money back. Don't even worry about that. They, they're asking for too much. They're cheating us out of our money. Keep it. Put, put it back in. Put it back in quick before they come. But what did he say? Give Caesar what Caesar requires and you give God what he desires. That's what you do. He says, you don't break the rules. Even if it's unreasonable, Christians obey. We were called to do all of it. Taxes, traffic laws. We even have to obey the speed limit. That's what we're called to do. Now, you know, this text is really going to hit me in the face because we have a 17-hour drive to get to Oklahoma. And I got a feeling after preaching this passage, that ride is going to be a little bit longer because I'm going to have four kids in the back saying, hey, Daddy, I remember that, that sermon you preached about obeying the speed limit. And it looks like you're going 95 in the 65. I just, I just want to help a brother out. I know we're trying to get there, but um, okay, I don't go 95 in the 65. Make it go a little bit down. Anyway, all that being said, it's our duty to obey the governing authorities, even if we think it's unreasonable. We joke about the speed limit, but there are being some laws that are passed out that I guarantee you that you won't be a fan of. Even in just trying to be a godly person on this earth, you'll say, man, this seems to be an unreasonable ask. But God has placed these people in position of authority, and it's our job to submit. But you know, God has established government. You've got to see this with your own eyes. Why don't you turn left in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13? This will help us to have just the proper perspective, because that can seem like a hard ask for Christians to say, you mean to tell me I've got to submit and obey? It's one thing for me just not to grumble about the people in office, but I actually got to do what they say. Government is established by God. Romans chapter 13 in verse 1. It says every person is to be in subjection, that same word, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from who? From God. And it says in those who exist, they are established by who? God. You see the common trend there? See, authority comes from God, and those who are established are done so by God. Even in verse 2, it says, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of who? God. You've opposed God. And it says, And they who have opposed them will receive condemnation on themselves. He even goes as far as to verse 4 down there in Romans chapter 13. He says, For it is a minister of God to you for your good. This minister is the same word diakonos that's used in the New Testament for deacon. He says that the government authorities are acting and serving as deacons of society. And they're put in place by God himself. So really this should obliterate the phrase for people, even as Christians, who say, man, you know, that's not my president. I didn't vote for him. And guess what? Newsflash, even if you didn't vote for the president, God did. And he appointed that person in that office for this time. He appointed the governors. He appointed all the city officials. And he's done that so that they can be a, an avenger of the wrath that comes upon those who practice evil. They're to keep it to be a safe and a secure arena. But it's our job not to 
to, to try to judge and to slander and to malign, we're to submit. That's what our responsibility is as citizens. We can turn back to Titus, and you see that. We may be unhappy with the government laws and even the governing leaders, but we have an obligation to God to honor them. And you know what we should do? We should pray for them. God says, pray for those who are in authority. Let it be my, his, his will that he could save them, save them and, and even do good to, to all the nations as a result of those in office. But it's our job to submit. And one thing is, Christians, we need to realize is that living in conformity to the law of the land is not the same as living in conformity to the world. It doesn't mean that we're conforming to the world. We're just doing what God has called us to do, and that's submitting to those in office. And this has happened all throughout Scripture. But some Christians say, hey, wait a minute. What about, when do I have an opportunity to, to, to disobey the commands of the governing authorities? Well, Christians have a, a right to disobey whenever the commanding and governing authorities cause us to do something that goes against Scripture. That's the only reason. That's the only reason. So then the Christian is smiling now saying, hey, when there's a room for civil disobedience? Well, it's really when they violate the commands that God has given his people. And you see this in Exodus 1. In Exodus 1, you know what happened? Pharaoh was telling the midwives, you better kill every Hebrew boy that's born. But what did they do? Did they obey, yes or no? So everybody says no, because they realized they had a command in the back of their mind says, you know, thou shalt not kill. They had to obey God rather than man. Allow those Hebrew boys to be born. We even have seen this in the preaching series through Daniel. Daniel 6, the three Hebrew boys, what did they do? They didn't bow down and worship. They said, you need to be, be worshiping the image. Did they worship, yes or no? No, they didn't because they knew that they shouldn't have any other God before them. You see how that truth of God overrides the, the, the commands of society, if it violates. And even in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 5, the apostles were threatened to be killed unless they stopped preaching the gospel. You know what their response was? They said, we must obey God rather than men. Throw us in the prison, kill us if you need to, but we must obey God. Do you have that type of resolve to submit to God and to submit to authority? The only time that you shouldn't is when it violates the commands that God has given us. Honoring the government authorities, it should be a submission of the heart. It should bless you because you realize that you're truly a citizen in heaven and others should be able to see that and be encouraged in that. You know, I, I think of a, a dear sister in this church that helped punctuate this principle in my thinking at a soccer game this year. We're at an HCA soccer game and my son is out there with the team. They're playing on the field and and then there was a referee that he was just making some bad calls. You know, it's one thing to make calls against your son's team. You've ever been there as a parent. You, it's one thing to have the, the calls against your team, but it's another thing for them to just be bad calls. I mean, there were even people on the other side that was like, ooh, he shouldn't have called that. But he did. And there was a couple of parents out there. I was in the group. I, I wasn't saying much. I said a couple of things. <laughs> but we were just tempted to be like, ref, that was a bad call, you know? Another parent kind of was like, hey, do you have eyes? Can you see? I mean, it was just, it started to get bad. And the sister right here in this church came up to us and said, you know what? God has appointed that referee, and he's just a man. He is simply a man, and the man is going to make mistakes. And I think he made a lot of mistakes that day. Uh, but anyway, she said that he's a man, but he's designated by God to ref this game at this hour, at this point in human history. And it's our job to submit to that. You imagine that? I thought about that principle. If we're to submit to just a soccer referee, 
How much more should we submit to our mayor, to our governor, to the president, to all those in Congress? You see, that's the higher calling that God has for us. And look, there are always going to be rules that are going to be passed that we disagree with. But we have a responsibility to honor God and to submit to them as unto the Lord. That's the, the first couple of things. Submit. You see, the second thing that you should do, and that's obey. The third thing we see, if we're going to be a good citizen here, is it says be ready for good, every good deed. Every, ready. That's an eagerness to perform actions that promote the common welfare of the community. He said we ought to have an eagerness, people. We're believers that have been transformed from within. We should be ready for every good task. We ought to be the most public-spirited people on earth, right? Because we understand that this isn't our home. We're doing this for the good of those who are around us. And so he says, be ready for every good deed. And the false teachers, they were unqualified for any good work, whether secular or sacred, because they didn't have God. But we have God. We have the Spirit of God, and so we should do that. If there's a military need, we should meet it. If there's a, a natural disaster, we should be ready to come to the aid. If there's an accident, we should be on the scene trying to figure out how we can help use our resources to benefit the good of those around us. You see, being a good citizen of heaven means being an outstanding citizen here on this earth. But the question for us this morning to consider is, in what ways do you struggle to show honor and obey the government that, that God has given you to serve? Because you know what? It's affecting your witness. And as some of you, as you realize now through the scriptures, it's affecting your worship. It could easily derail your worship when you're at a place of being hostile towards the government that God has put and established in place. Well, not only do we have the mandate to be a good citizen, we also have the mandate to be a good neighbor. You know, you have to remember that Christians are going to be the minority in the locations that we find ourselves in. So it was critical that their lifestyle be credible to the gospel witness. And number four, the, the fourth virtue that they need to have to be a to good citizen, a good neighbor, he says, malign no one. That word malign, it comes from the Greek word blasphemeo. is where we get the English word blaspheme. He says you shouldn't use abusive, insulting, cursing, or injurious language towards anybody. That just shouldn't be named among us. That's a virtue that we need to have. We should malign no one. Even those things that people do that are hostile towards us, we shouldn't curse back. And even there are the believers in Crete. They could have been tempted to speak evil about the leaders. They could have been tempted to slander other citizens that were doing harm to them in society. They could have, you know, cursed people that were wicked in, around their culture. But what did they do? They said, we will not malign anyone. He says, no one. But that's just like Jesus, right? In 1 Peter 2, 23, it says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. That's what we ought to do. We ought to be able to say, you know what? God sees that. I could take vengeance in my own hands right now, use abusive speech, but God has the final say on this person's life. Leave it to him. Christians don't need to spend all the time slandering people, and we don't need to be spending our time telling the world how bad they are. We need to be maximizing the time trying to tell the world how good God is. That's what the, the speech that should flow from our mouth. Telling them about the goodness of God. Telling them that there's a righteous way, a righteous path. It shouldn't be an offensive speech. That's what unbelievers on the world are doing. They operate 
in the form of hostility, but we shouldn't get that in our system. And also, as Christians, we need to be careful not to get wrapped up in political causes. You know, there's some political causes that some people get passionate about. Yeah, I mean, they get passionate. But Christians must remember that the greatest cause is the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every other cause is subordinate to that. You don't want to mess around and lose that opportunity to be a, a witness for Jesus Christ because you've made a cause and shoved it in the face of society and the governing leaders. He gives us a fifth virtue that we should pursue as well. He says, be peaceable. This peaceable means not to be quarrelsome or eager to show your anger physically. It means a brawler. Christians shouldn't be known as brawlers, pugnacious, ready to box out things. You know what? And some of you might be saying, preacher man, look at me. Do I look like a fighter? You know, you may not be a fighter, but let me ask you this. How was your Facebook page? How was your social media presence? How do you, how do you respond in your social media? I've seen some Christians that have boxed people online. With every text, they're getting jabs in to people, trying to bring forward some issue that will burn in eternity. Christians need to be about the business of, of showing good, being peaceable, and that being peaceable to all men, because God showed peace to you even when, when you were a sinner. That should be our, our desire. Check your social media. Check what you post. Showing peace to all men. There's a sixth virtue that we should have as a citizen of heaven, the mandate that God has given us, and that's to be gentle. You see that term there? This is a, a meekness that makes it hard for a person to refuse you even when you're bringing them a critical message. That's what that is. That, that meekness of Jesus was that way. In 2 Timothy 2.25, it says, with gentleness, we should be correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God would grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. That's what we're doing. You know, we're going to meet some people that are going to be hostile and they're going to be wicked. They're going to slander us. But guess what? We must be gentle with them so that God might have an opportunity to save their soul. That's what we do. I'm going to ask you this. What are the practical difficulties that you're facing right now? Maybe at work. Maybe you have a coworker that you need to remind yourself of this principle. Somebody at, at your college or your school that you're in. Maybe there's a, a non-Christian family member that you need to learn how to be peaceable and gentle with. Get a game plan together and show how Christ can be uh, lived out in you as you demonstrate your life before them. That's the message for us. He says there's a seven virtue, and that's showing consideration for all men. He says, show every consideration for all men. That consideration really is a form of humility that exhibits kindness on behalf of another person. It says, I'm going to do it even if you're morally corrupt. I'm going to serve you. Why? Because I love you based on the fact that God loved me and showed me his love. That's what believers do. And that's what Paul was telling Titus to remind the church of these mandates. There are non-negotiables for the believer. We've got to seek ways to serve others in society that God has called us to be a part of. We're going to have an opportunity to do this as a church by doing good, having a community Thanksgiving meal on Thanksgiving Day right here, seeking people in the community. Our ambassadors are going out and, and sharing the gospel and inviting people to that meal because we want to express love, showing consideration for all kinds of people, all because God has shown consideration for us. Well, that's the first thing we're to do and remember if we're going to exhibit a godly life in the midst of an ungodly world. So remember our mandate. 
Second thing we need to do is we need to remember the motivation for godly living. If we're going to have godly living, we need to remember the motivation. You see, Christians are motivated to live godly by reflecting on who we once were before Christ. And as Paul gives Titus the list of these things, he gives seven vices that grip the life of the unbeliever before God stepped in. And he says in verse 3, he says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You see, I love how he says, we once were. That usually refers to a lifestyle that characterized humanity in its fallenness before God intervened and transformed their life from within. And, and Paul uses the first person plural pronoun. He says, we love that about Paul. He didn't say, Titus, go tell them how bad they are. He said, use we language. And that really should be a lesson for us. You know, when we go out and, and share this with others, you don't go up to Christ talking to an unbeliever saying, hey, you, hey, you, come here, look. Did you realize that, that, that you're disobedient and that you're a rebel and that, you, and that you're depraved and hard deprived of the truth? Hey, 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 where are you going? I'm trying to share the gospel with you. I mean, that's, that's exactly how it'll go, right? People will leave every time. We don't go point the fingers at them and tell them how bad they are. Paul is saying, look, remember you were once this way. It ought to give you the, the compassion of heart. Yes, we need to tell them some hard truths about them but we don't go pointing the finger to the neglect of thinking that we were once in that situation. And if it weren't for God's grace, we would still be in that situation. We'd still be there. The very people that we're tempted to despise right now are the very people that we were before Christ intervened. And that should motivate us to have compassion on them. And but Paul is excellent being led by the Spirit and being able to tell Titus to say, look, give them a picture of how they once were, how we once were. This is genuine Christianity. We can stop and reflect on these things that help us to be compelled and it motivate us to have compassion on fallen humanity. In verse 3, we see the first vice that was ours before Christ. He says, we were once foolish ourselves without understanding. This, is, this means to be senseless. This is a person that could not understand truth. And that was us before Christ, right? That's 1 Corinthians 2. We were spiritually appraised. Even though we might have been reading the word, you might have been in church reciting it, memorized it. But you couldn't practice it and follow it because you were foolish in your thinking. Depraved in spirit and deprived of the truth. You may not have been as bad as you could be, but your nature was hostile to God because you didn't believe that you needed to obey him. That's what foolish is. We saw a picture of this with King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Remember, he was out eating grass in the field. God had to humble him to a place. He was without his senses. And then when he came to his senses, what did he do? He recognized that truly there was one God who was exalted above all in the universe. There was one God. He was the living God. And that's what happened. But that's characterized our life before Christ. You know, we're in a culture of people that aren't even making sense with the claims they have. I mean, it's outright foolish. They're having to, to, to make up new words, old terms, they're redefining them to fit their sinful lifestyle. And we can have a sense of being repulsed by that. But guess what? We once were foolish ourselves. That should motivate us to be a light and to live godly before this community. That's us. He also said that the second vice, we were disobedient. You know, we're foolish. It speaks to the thinking that is not aligned with truth. Disobedience speaks to the will that has no disregard for authority and instruction. 
And that was what characterized us before Christ. We were disobedient. Ephesians 2.2 says that in which you previously walked according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He said, I mean, we were a son, we were a child of disobedience. That characterized our life before Christ. So we should have compassion, realizing that we once were this way. The third thing, he says, is deceived. The deception here, it's seduced to the point of being led astray from that which is right. And it's in the passive voice, which means that the action is being done from some outside agent. And you know who that is? That's Satan and his fallen fleet. When we were outside of Christ, we were deceived. We were fooled by Satan and his fallen minions into thinking that we didn't need to obey God. You know, foolish is not knowing. Disobedience is knowing but not obeying. And deceiving adds a, another degree of expressing Satan's schemes to bite the lie that God really doesn't care about what I'm doing. Ah, he doesn't care. He doesn't see this. He isn't concerned. He's up in the heavens running the universe or something, making it snow in Antarctica somewhere. He's not concerned about me. That's Satan's schemes. There's probably somebody here today thinking that God isn't concerned about your life. Think about what Satan did to Adam and Eve. You surely won't die. That's Satan's tactics, his schemes. But we fell for that trap all the time before Christ. You know, that's Satan's job even now. He's, he's the, the God of this world. And you know what he's doing? He's blinding the minds of unbelievers so that they don't see the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. That's what Satan's doing. We have to help the people. They're walking around like this. And we're mad when their sin bumps into our life. But we should have compassion knowing that they don't have any understanding as to what they're doing. It'll be like Christ. Forgive them. They know not what they do. I'm going to lay my life down so that they can see holiness and righteousness lifted up so that they might have an opportunity to repent. That's what we do time and time again in culture. And the fourth thing that there was advice for us, as I said, we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. This is serving as slaves to the passions of our heart. Not just sexually, that's the first thing that usually comes to mind, but it definitely is highlighted here in the cravings of men. But you know, this could be anything. Whether you're a shopaholic, a sports fanatic, a sadist, a rapist, gluttony, all of these things, we were in bondage to the desires of our life and they dominated our thinking and our conduct was affected by it. That's what happened. You know, the, the, the cravings of men. Now you have to be careful because the things that men crave are the things that make them slaves. You see, sin, it doesn't make a good friend. It makes a great master. And people think that they're just kind of having their sin and they're kind of coddling it and playing with it, but their sin will rule their life. And that's what happens to us. It's what happened to us before Christ. All we could do, even on our best day, was cater to our pleasures and our desires. We were once that way, and so we should have compassion on a people that we see that are still living that lifestyle. And then the fifth thing, spending our life in malice and envy, having ill will towards others, and enviously begrudging them because of their good fortune. You know what envy does? It says, man, I'm looking at your life, and I can't even be happy for you because I don't have what you have. That's what had happened. You may not have done this to the fullest degree, but you might have spent a lifetime of just wanting stuff. And we're living here in America where it just teaches you, you need, to, you need to have stuff. And if you got stuff, guess what? You need more stuff. Mo, Don't even put an R-E in there. Just more stuff. You need more stuff. More stuff. You got money, you need more money. 
and then you didn't have it, guess what? You were envious of other people who had it. That's what it was before Christ. And then it, it caused you to be, number six, vice, you're hateful. This means that you're being hated because people around you realize that you wanted what they had. Realize that you were just hating others. And so they hated you. Then it goes down to the seventh vice, which is hating one another. That's the loneliest and the lowest place on that spectrum. You hated people around you because they had what you didn't. No one could satisfy you. You made yourself the victim in all the circumstances. And so you hated other people. But Paul says that you must remember that we once were these kinds of people. And even if you aren't all these items on this list, there was something in there that characterized your life before Jesus Christ. And he says, this is what you must know and realize so that it will motivate you to be a, a light in this earth with people that are still living this lifestyle. That's what we should do over and over again. It should remind us to understand what God has done in our life, how far we've come, and then it should also give us compassion on this city around us. I don't know about you, but it's a joy for me to say, Lord, I think about where I was, and I say, praise his holy name. I don't need a worship team to help me praise the Lord. When I think about who I was before Christ, because I say, thank you, Lord. But then it also motivates me to say, I need to help people who are still this way. You see how this works? You see how that motivates godly living? That's what Paul is helping Titus to do, remind them of these things so that they can understand where they were and where they don't need to be. You know, Christians ought to be motivated not only by realizing where they once were, but they need to realize who they are now. We need to realize that we're loved by the Father. Look at verse 4 there. It says, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. That, that, that kindness that appeared, that's a direct reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But it was the kindness of God. And I think how, how Paul writes this is to help him to understand that, that it was God demonstrating an act of kindness, giving you something that you didn't deserve. That was his kindness that moved him to do that. And that should be the same thing for us. We're going to be around despicable people. We ought to be kind to them because God was kind to us. His love for mankind appeared, and he saved us. Notice we didn't save ourselves. God did. And he didn't just modify our behavior from the outside. He did a radical transformation on the inside. Even Scottish theologian John Murray said this about God's saving of us. He says it was an all-out pervasive moral transformation changing the whole man in heart, disposition, inclination, desire, motive, interest, ambition, and purpose. God did all that in you. It wasn't that he just kind of said, oh, you were pretty good. Let me kind of get you on the team. He saw that you were wretched, hopeless, and helpless, and he was moved with kindness to radically transform you and bring you into his family. Can we say thank you, God, for that? Thank you, Lord. He saved us. He did this. He helps us to understand that our motivation should be that. And, and what motivated God? Well, we see there continuing in verse 5. It's not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness. God never looked down and said, oh, that brother there, oh, man, he is very good with people. I need to save him and put him in my family. He's going to reach people for the gospel. It wasn't that he looked up and said, look at that girl. Look at that sister there. She, man, she's reading her Bible every day. She's memorized a bunch of verses. I need her on the team. Can't do this business without her. You will never hear that come from the heavens. It wasn't deeds that we have done in righteousness, but it's because of God's what? 
his mercy. His mercy said, I am going to withhold that judgment, the wrath that should be poured out for you, not only on a moment, but all throughout eternity. I'm going to withhold that wrath and I'm going to place it on my son. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take his righteousness and I'm going to give it to you to live out. That's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you received that gospel from God? Have you realized that mercy? Because that's what we need to be reminded of. It's not our deeds. It was God's love. Our deeds are like filthy rags, as Isaiah 64, 6 said, right? All our deeds we did when we were unrighteous, they were like, uh, they, they were like filthy garments before God. But God was the one that was motivated. And our deeds is, is not what attracted us to God. It was divine pity that made him come down and act on our behalf. And that's how we should do to society. Even Ephesians 1, 4 reminds us that it was in love that he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. It was according to the kind intention of his will. And in Ephesians 2, 4, it says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he lavished us and he saved us. That was what God did. And we must always remember that. I think this is good for Paul to, to help us to understand that even though we're called to do good deeds and good works in society, that it's not our good works that save us. It's God's mercy and his grace. Amen? And as he does that, he wants to motivate us to now go out and show that to society. It even leads to a, a fifth uh, virtue that happens now that we're saved. He says, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly. That regeneration is the activity that God used in making us new. It's like the language that Jesus used to, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, or I'm sorry, Nicodemus in John 3, when he talked to him about being born from above. He says, that's what God did to us. It wasn't that he just signed us up to have a bunch of religious activities. He says, I've given you new life. You now have a, a new desire, new affections. You heard about the things that I heard about. You love the things that I love. And you're motivated by the things that motivate me. And that's to have pity on society and to seek to win them for Christ. That's it. He poured that out by the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He did the washing and then he continuously cleanses us from our sin. And notice that we didn't do the washing. God did. This is all the work of his hand motivated by his own mercy. A little note on soteriology here. He said that he poured out his spirit upon us. He did that richly. So guess what? We don't need another helping of the Holy Spirit. Like some people do at the buffet, get a second helping. You don't need a second helping of the Holy Spirit. He gave you in its fullness, richly, at the moment of salvation. So if you have Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't need more of him. You just need to submit to him so that his power will be on display in your life that you might demonstrate a life of good works. Amen? That's the, that's the work of God in saving us. And he's done that. And then also the Son, he redeemed us. Look, it says it's through Jesus Christ, our Savior, letting us know that Jesus Christ did the redemptive work. His substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf allowed us to have union with God and thus being in a position to be a light in this world. And then he says, so that we can be justified by his grace and made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're justified, declared right by God, no other court can declare us guilty when God declares us righteous. Amen? Nobody else. He says, I did that to you. I moved with pity to you, and I declared you righteous, renewed you, 
regenerated you, and I helped you, and now you're going to be a co-heir with Jesus Christ. I can't even imagine that. We're co-heirs of the throne of grace based on what God has done with us. This is the ultimate expectation for the believer. It's for us to know that, that we have the hope of eternal life even right now. But it's a reminder for us to understand that the cross is the level playing field for all of humanity. You see, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we all have received the mercy of God that has cleansed us. If you're a believer today, you receive God's mercy. And he saved you. And he helped you to understand how you can be clean so that you can't despise the world that he came to save. That's the brilliance of Paul, even writing this letter. He says, I want to show you how to be compassionate because I'm going to show you that God was compassionate to you. You see, God didn't just overlook your sin. His grace was greater. And it wasn't that his anger wasn't aroused, but you know what? His mercy was greater. And then, you know, as if God is saying that we need to be this very same way towards those around us. Think about ways in which you can be tempted to slander, malign, curse, even just be a part from the lives of those folks that touch you each and every day from a malicious intent. And say, you know what? God could have done that to me. Let me marry my life to theirs in a way that will promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our motivation to godly living. But we've seen the mandate that we need to remember. We've also seen the, the motivation. Last, let's look at the, the, the mission. That's the last thing that we need to do is to remember the mission for godly living. Right there in verse 8. You see, mercy motivates a mission. When you are truly impacted by the mercy of God, you'll be devoted to the mission of Christ. And he says there, he says, this is a trustworthy statement. He's talking about the statement that he just made about this great God who in his kindness has saved us, cleansed us, and given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. He said, that's a trustworthy statement. And I want you to speak these confidently, Titus. Tell people repeatedly and speak it confidently because they need to be reminded about this glorious gospel. And it's the thing that changes lives. You know, we don't need to have a political agenda. We just need the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what changes people. That's what we need to do and promote. And he says we do that so that those who have believed in God, these are true believers, will be careful to engage in good deeds. That's the mission, It's to engage in good deeds, believers. If you're a Christian today, God still has you on this earth because he wants you to intentionally engage in good deeds in the household of God and out in the wicked society that we live in. He says, do both. That's what we're doing. He, he wants us to understand this. There's a theology of good deeds all throughout the scriptures. You know, good deeds, uh, they are our part for the reason that we're saved. If you look uh, back in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, he says, he gave himself for us and redeemed us of every lawless deed to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's part of the reason we're saved, is to be eager to do what's good. And good deeds also keep us from being unfruitful in the church. In Titus 3.14, he says, Our people must learn to engage in good deeds and to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Be idle. Mess around and be idle and get yourself back into sin. That's the purpose of good deeds. And he also says that good deeds can contribute to unbelievers getting saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's Jesus' words. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen? That's what we should do. 
We could be tempted to live in this world thinking about just us, thinking about biblical principles only, and having no desire to be amongst ungodly people. But that's not how God would have us to live. There's a story of a woman who was a missionary with her husband and her family in the Philippines. And after a difficult time of ministry, they moved back to the United States for a season. They wanted to get a reprieve because ministry had been so challenging for them. And they moved into a quiet, secluded place with a patio that aided this lady's reading of the scriptures in peace. And all of that was great until she had some neighbors that moved in. These neighbors that came in, they were coarse. They used offensive language. They had offensive actions. The adults were screaming obscenities to each other and to their children, cursing daily and night. The kids were unruly and they were dirty. And this lady recalls how the, the exterior of their condo began to deteriorate. The lawn was overgrown with weeds and the windows were, and the screens were ratty and torn. She knew she needed to reach out to these wretched folks, but she said, you know, I encountered one problem. I truly hated these people. That was in her diary. I hated them. They were ruining my life. And while she was in the midst of weeping, she prayed to the Lord and she said these words, Lord, I hate these neighbors. I know that I'm supposed to love them, but I haven't an ounce of love for them, end quote. But then she said as she prayed, she opened the Bible and she started to read in Colossians 3, 12 and 14, these words. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. A lot of the virtues we just saw in this text. And you know what she did? It changed her, her whole perspective. She started to bake cookies for them. She even would go over and ask the woman for a hot cup of coffee and she prepared it and they would sit and talk on her patio. She used hers because theirs was all messed up. Uh, she said she would even offer to babysit, even though it was impossible to have and manage those kids. But she said, you know what? Here it is. I was frustrated because of my neighbors, but God began to do a work in me and to help me to realize that I didn't leave the mission field. And that's the same thing for all of us, guys. If we're in Christ, we never leave that mission field. We're always on mission because the people around us need the gospel to be demonstrated and communicated so that hearts can be changed for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. So my question to you today is, what are you doing specifically to show the world that Christ lives in you? Are you wanting to be detached and be offended by their ungodliness and their wretchedness? Or are you leaning in with love and good deeds? How can you be intentional to love others so that Christ might be winning their souls to the King? One thing we need to be convinced of is that as Christians, we're going to live in an ungodly world. And the question is, is not whether we're going to be in an ungodly world, but are we going to be godly in this ungodly world that we live in? Well, let's remember our mandates to be a good citizen and a good neighbor. Let's remember our motivation, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let's remember our mission, that we were saved for good works. But I do have to ask, if you're here today and Maybe you look in verse 3 there and you see that this says, for we also once were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved and, and pleasures and lust, spending your life on envy and malice and hateful and hating one another. And if you can't honestly say to your soul that that once was my life, 
I would encourage you to repent today and trust in Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. You don't have to leave this place being that same person if this characterizes your life. Turn to Jesus today. And we can help you do that even after this service. And you'll understand the sweetness of believing in Jesus and his substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf. That you can be a new, creature, a new creation, a new creature, where the old things have passed away and behold, the new things can come. But for the rest of us, if we're in Christ, let us be eager to do good deeds, motivated by the mercy and the grace of God, so that others in this ungodly society might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask his help. Father, we're delighted to look at your word today and see the truths that are ours. We thank you so much that you have not left us in this world without your word and your spirit. But Lord, I pray that you would just convict us of not living out the good deeds that you have given in us even before the foundation of this world. You've saved us not just so that we might honor you and worship you with our life alone, but we should do that and engage a fallen culture so that we might win disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful at this task that you might be exalted in our lives. We love you and we praise you and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.